Welcome, every happy warrior, to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And what happy warriors do is they focus on their five Fs. Happy warriors are people who are developing and building and improving their families. Happy warriors are people who are taking care of their physical fitness. Happy warriors are focusing on their finances in a very realistic way. And uh, happy warriors are people who develop friends and nurture friendships and maintain friendships. And finally, the fifth F, happy warriors at least are exploring the reality of faith, the role of faith, and are at least open to the shockingly revolutionary notion that faith is as important a commodity in the life of a human being as oxygen is. That's right. So much so that uh, people will evolve faith in something. So important is it for the human being to have faith in something beyond himself and something bigger than himself that people will actually develop faith in the most extraordinary things, as I'm going to explain to you as we move along. But before I do that, I have to uh, toot our horn a little bit here. I have to boast just a little bit, and I have to proclaim that the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show is the only show in the entire Digiverse. Um, That's a self-made-up word to show how cool I am and how with it I am. Uh, Instead of saying the digital universe, I just say the digiverse, and those in the know recognize just how on top of everything I really am. And so, uh, as I said, I have to uh, toot my own trumpet a little bit and remind you, as I'm sure you've already heard, that the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show is the only show in the entire digiverse... Uh, that has been officially certified to emit absolutely no greenhouse gas, which is really pretty extraordinary. How do we do it, you might ask? Well, uh, we opened a business. We opened a woman's gym, and uh, for a very reasonable amount, uh, we provide access to a nice air-conditioned room with large TV screens showing roads in some of the most beautiful corners of the country. Uh, One of our popular ones is a a cycling trip through Iceland, and uh, we have another very popular one through the Drakensberg Range of South Africa. And women pay a, a reasonable sum, enough to provide us with a profit, Uh, to ride bicycles, you know, for an hour a time, and we show how many calories they've burnt off, and and they're very, very happy with the service. Um, We we make it for women only, so women don't have to feel self-conscious that they're being gawked at by male 
um, uh, clients. And so for women only, you might ask how we get away with that. And the answer is we don't. Uh, We're just hoping not to be sued by some disgruntled male who is kept out of our marvelous gym. Now, I I haven't even got to the really important part. Even now you're saying to yourself how wonderful that a podcast should also have a profit-making business on the side, a gym. But you only know half the story. Here's the best part. Instead of wasting all that energy cycling, right? How do these stationary bikes work? Well, they have brakes that are either magnetic or sometimes they're friction bands. And so where does all the energy go that moves from the women's legs who are pedaling? Well, like the conservation of energy says you can't destroy energy, right? Energy has a, a reality to it. So If the women are putting out energy, cycling away, and we nearly always have a completely full gym of uh, active women, where could all that energy be going? Well, in a normal bike, it is being wasted as heat. Uh, the, The friction band that stops the flywheel from spinning freely and makes the women feel that they're pedaling uphill uh, and... In, in other bikes, it's a magnetic restraint system where, again, the, uh, the, the, the energy is released as heat. And ordinarily, it's, you know, it's one of the reasons that obviously these gyms have to be air-conditioned because not only do the exerciser people get hot, but they're actually producing heat, which just is totally wasted, right? That heat gets produced by the stationary bike, and then it has to be taken away by the air-conditioning system for which you're paying money for the electricity. And no, my friends, here's the best part. You are going to sit back in astonishment at the sheer incandescent brilliance of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, Women's Gym. You see, each bicycle flywheel is connected to an electrical generator. That's right. As the women cycle, electricity is being produced. Now, because the um, the 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 gym is not in the same amount of use at all hours of the day. We do have a battery system, a Tesla battery system. Um, it's all sort of what's called a wall battery. It's a big battery, and so uh, for uh, periods when the gym is not in active usage, but we may still want to draw electricity, uh, the battery works fine. So so there it is. The battery is kept fully charged by women who pay for the privilege of charging our batteries. And it's from those batteries that all the electricity we need is drawn. And so our uh, equipment, our cooling systems, our transmission equipment, our satellite channel, everything uh, powered by this. And so when I say we have been praised by organizations ranging from Greenpeace to Oxfam uh, for our um, efforts in making certain that no greenhouse gases are emitted by this show and that fossil fuel is absolutely not being used, God forbid. And nonetheless, the show is here 
for your entertainment and education every single week at any hour of the day or night. You can thank those hard peddling women who, from the goodness of their hearts, are not only supplying the electricity, but paying for the privilege of doing so. And talking of energy, you will be happy to hear that the problems of energy have been solved. Uh, Fossil fuels, right? Nobody wants to use coal and oil. And I'll talk a little more about that before we're done today. And um, uh, I think everybody also knows the, the hard and painful and not to mention inconvenient truth that so-called renewable energy, that's wind and solar, um, they just don't do it. Uh, They're incredibly expensive. Uh, They are not, by the way, very good for animals. Uh, Both the the vast amount of desert that needs to be covered with solar cells or mirrors in order to focus the sun's heating rays on a boiler that will then produce steam, Uh, or the spinning rotors of huge wind turbines slaughtering huge numbers of migratory bird species. I mean, you know, let's face it, wind and solar are not without cost, and not only are they expensive in money and environmental factors, but they're also very expensive in financial factors, so much so that um, in many parts of the world, wind power has to be subsidized by taxation on other regular power sources. So, and I've spoken about this a few months ago on the show, the way California in the United States, California's electricity costs have skyrocketed. You might say, well, why? After all, they've been bringing many new wind farms online. And the point is that wind farms don't even carry themselves. They need to be subsidized out of additional fees on the electricity bill of uh, California users. Um, Obviously, if I was located in California, I wouldn't have this problem because of my eager bicycle peddler electricity generators. But all of this here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show announced for the first time, all of this is solved. The problem has been completely eliminated. How's it been eliminated? Well, I'll tell you that in about 50 seconds, because first of all, I want to recommend that you visit the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Uh, okay, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. That's one P, by the way, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, only one P, L-A-P-I-N, and um, dot com. And when you're there, I would like you to take a look at the online course and Uh, One of them is called the Financial Prosperity Collection. And um, it's an online program. It's uh, 10 hours of video training on the principles of increasing revenue, regardless of where you are, regardless of what you've been doing, regardless of what approved government category of race, gender, or class that you might fit into, And nonetheless, the principles of increasing your financial revenue that are taught 
in the program Financial Prosperity Collection um, is available, and, and particularly because Father's Day um, is um, is like in a week's time from the time I'm recording this show, or less than a week even. Um, so uh, that being the case, we have a special discount of $20 off that program. That's like putting $20 in your pocket. Uh, the discount code is FATHERS20, right? Father, fathers in the plural, F-A-T-H-E-R-S, the digits two zero, and away you go, $20 off the price of the Financial Prosperity Collection online course. So uh, uh, avail yourself of that in honor of Father's Day, which I observe, by the way, I observe Father's Day every day of the year because thank you thank you to the marvelous uh, lapin children every day is father's day for me that's how good i've got it every day is father's day so thank you lapins and uh for everyone else celebrating father's day on a specific day well for the next week you are able to get hold of the Financial Prosperity Collection online course. So 10 hours of video instruction uh, that is available with $20 off. You just go to rabbidaniellappin.com, okay? All right, so um, I told you I would solve the energy problem, and please remember you heard it here first. So, you know, in, in days and weeks to come, when people say, hey, I've heard the, the energy problem is solved. There's nothing more to worry about. You just say, yes, you know, I heard it a week ago on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. Uh, that way we will be able to, to gain even more credit than we're gaining for being a, uh, a carbon neutral operation. So what is the solution? Well, you know, it, I don't want you to think that I'm so smart that I figure this all out for myself. Uh, I figure very little out for myself. The overwhelming majority of things I tell you are from ancient Jewish wisdom, and uh, the rest are from information sources that I garner, sometimes with the help of many of you who serve as uh, ears out there in the digiverse. And so um, it was, in fact, uh, with credit to the Wall Street Journal, and the issue of uh, Monday, June 14th, 2021, has a front page story that caught my attention and made me say, praise the Lord, the problems are solved. And uh, the headline is, Japan's big hydrogen bet aims to revolutionize the energy market. That's right, folks. You see, hydrogen is a fabulous energy source. You see, the problem with fossil fuels is they put out carbon dioxide, which is terrible for the environment. Carbon dioxide makes the sea level rise and flood us all out. And so what we need is something that you can burn and it'll provide heat, which is another word for energy, and it doesn't put out carbon dioxide or even carbon monoxide or carbon trioxide. No, no such thing. Uh, but um, what is that stuff? This miracle energy source is 
hydrogen. Because when you uh, burn hydrogen, when you extract the energy of hydrogen, all you get as a byproduct is water, fresh, clean, good, usable water. It's like pure water. It's like distilled water. You can't go wrong with it. And so from now onwards, my friends, uh, hydrogen is the way to go. It might even be more beneficial to the planet than my women's gym. But don't tell anyone about that, okay? I mean, I, I really, I don't want to get uh, sued by guys who are being excluded from this beautiful gym. And and furthermore, um, I I wonder, I, and this is, I'm, I'm struggling, you know, if, if you have any thoughts on this, you can definitely let me know by going to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com and going to the contact us page. But um, should I tell the women exercisers, the women peddlers, the women bicyclers on the stationary bikes, should I tell them that they're generating electricity? Um, or should I leave them in a state of blissful ignorance? I mean, it, it probably would please them, right, to know that they're doing something even more useful than burning off the inches and burning off the calories. And so uh, I probably should tell them. But uh, on the other hand, do I really want to open up that entire conversation? Uh, you know, some of the women will say, well, then we should be able to come here for free. In fact, you should pay us because we're providing you with electricity. And, and so we don't want to pay our monthly gym fee. And I would have to say, no, you don't understand. You are benefiting anyways right? And the proof is that you were coming and happily paying even before I told you about the electrical generation. You see the problem. And so do I really want to open up that Pandora's box? Um, or shall I just leave things as they are? That's the question that at the moment is keeping me awake at night. It used to be global warming and the energy crisis. Uh, but now that that is solved with hydrogen, my uh, main question keeping me awake at night is should i should i not tell the women clients of the rabbi daniel lappin show gym that they are producing valuable electricity through their efforts i don't know that's that is a uh, a problem still but back to the wonders of hydrogen and um, so what the story says is that uh, japan built the world's third largest economy on an industrial base powered by imported oil, gas, and coal. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Japan is powered by oil, gas, and coal, most of which is imported. Uh, but now it's going to, or if I read it exactly in the words of the Wall Street Journal, um, now it is planning to shift a big chunk of that power to hydrogen in one of the world's biggest bets on an energy source that has too long been dismissed. By the way, the article is by a guy called, well, a guy, who knows how he identifies, right? I should honor his self-selection by a person on the range, on the spectrum, whose name is Fred Dvorak. Now, in, in what has to be <laughs> either the height of pretentiousness or the height of really good humor, uh, Fred spells his name P-H-R-E-D. <laughs> you got to love that. Um, so Fred Dvorak, uh, thank you for your story on hydrogen, from which I'm going to read additional pieces. 
And um, uh, this is going to lay the groundwork for a global supply chain of hydrogen that will let hydrogen come into its own as an energy source and further sideline oil and coal. Wow, that is, I mean, you see why I'm so excited, right? And you see why I'm no longer worried about the energy crisis because hydrogen is the solution. Um, Let me read some more from the article that Fred wrote. But like many countries, Japan is realizing it cannot achieve its goal of zero emissions by 2050 using renewable sources alone, right? They, they want to get rid of oil and, and coal. Uh, that's a given. But they were hoping to fill in the gap with oil, with, excuse me, solar and wind. And guess what? They too are discovering what you just heard on the Rabbi Daniel Appen Show, which is that ain't happening anytime soon. So the alternative, the solution is, yeah, we're not going to be able to do this with wind. We're not going to be able to do it with power from the sun. But guess what? We could do it with hydrogen. And, uh, you know, this this is, is really very exciting. And, uh, you know, how, how would that work? Well, um, one way is, of course, hydrogen could be burnt. It's got a lot of heat in it. And uh, you could ignite it under controlled conditions and produce heat, which could then produce uh, steam from boiling water. And, uh, and that'll drive turbines, just like a nuclear power station does. A nuclear reactor produces heat. The heat is conveyed to a boiler in which there is water or sometimes other substances are used. I think it's usually water. And that produces steam, which drives a turbine, which is um, a machine that uses high-pressure steam to produce rotary motion. Essentially, it's blowing from special jets. It's blowing superheated steam onto the blades of sort of a giant fan, actually many, many, many blades of a very, very giant fan. And the fan spins, and the shaft on which the blades are mounted uh, is then attached to a generator, and the generator spins, producing electricity. That's one way of doing it. Here's another neat way of doing it. It's in something called a fuel cell, a hydrogen cell. And the way this works is uh, you pipe. Now, hydrogen is an element that is, uh, it's the lightest element. It's number one on the periodic table. And that means it only has one proton and it has one electron. Proton is a positive charged particle with mass. And an electron is a negatively charged particle with theoretically no mass. And yes, we're just going to leave it at that, if you don't mind, for today. And uh, the... uh, Uh, The idea is you pass hydrogen into this thing called a hydrogen cell, and by means of um, catalysts, these are various substances, usually certain metals, that that, uh, help make a reaction occur, even though they play no direct role in the reaction itself. That's what a catalyst is. And uh, what the catalyst does is makes the... uh, hydrogen atoms split up and the positive charged particle uh, a positive hydrogen ion ion goes to the anode of the battery and the uh, the negatively charge the negative charge of the electron is used is pushed externally through a circuit so astonishingly with no moving parts at all a hydrogen cell 
actually directly produces electricity from the hydrogen. So I mean, better and better, right? And if you switch me off now, if you say to yourself, you know what, uh, 20 minutes is enough for a podcast, I don't have patience to listen to more than that, then I'm afraid I will be leaving you with gigantic misinformation because um, uh, much of the impression I've conveyed up till now, I'm going to have to denounce and discredit as we move along. But what I've told you about the hydrogen cell is exactly correct. That is precisely uh, how a hydrogen cell works. And yes, you can produce electricity with no moving parts. You know, forget about burning the hydrogen, forget about boiling water, forget about driving um, steam through a turbine, forget about a generator. You just get electricity out of the hydrogen cell. I mean, this is very cool. So you don't have to worry about that solar cell producing very little power, especially on cloudy days. Now you just draw power off this hydrogen cell, just pipe the hydrogen into it, you know, from a big tank in the trunk of your car. And hey, look, <laughs> what could be bad? Right? This is all wonderful, wonderful news, right? And so, uh, uh, I mean, that's just one of the many advantages of hydrogen. Another one is that it can be used in existing power plants with very little modification. You know, existing power plants are designed to run on, on coal or oil or sometimes LNG, liquefied natural gas, um, you know, which, which comes out of oil wells, right, uh, in the United States, in other parts of the world, Africa, uh, and this liquid uh, natural gas is is flammable it's an energy source it's wonderful and they made ships to carry it around the world so uh, japan imports a certain amount of liquid natural gas as they import oil as they import a lot of their coal and here's the great thing the power plant that burns oil or natural gas or coal in order to produce heat which will boil water, which produces steam, which drives the turbine, which drives the generator, which produces the electricity. Uh, you know what? You don't have to do major modifications to the, uh, to the um, burner, if you like, at the power station for it to run on hydrogen. So instead of oil or liquid, liquefied natural gas or coal, heating the water to make steam it can be hydrogen that heats the water to make the steam that turns the turbine that turns the generator that produces the electricity so better and better i mean you know you can understand my irrepressible surge of jubilation as i read the story it's it's too wonderful for words the good news just keeps on coming uh, the um Japan is really excited about using hydrogen because they know they're going to be able to reduce their dependence on China, which, as we all know, is the biggest supplier of solar panels and batteries. They're also the biggest supplier of hair dryers, lawn mowers, cameras, and uh, almost everything else. So Japan says, hey, guess what? We won't have to buy solar panels coming from China because uh, we'll just use hydrogen. Um, it's all getting excited. Uh, it's all getting very exciting. Um, hydrogen is, is going to have to play its part in, uh, in energy usage if we're going to save the planet. That's uh, something from the International Energy Agency. Um, so um, what else? 
Um, and you can see that what else is the the uh, the great news here? Um, the reason Japan is so excited about this is that uh, Japan shut down most of its nuclear power plants after a 2011 tsunami caused a meltdown at the nuclear power plant in Fukushima. Uh, okay, again, you you know that nobody died from that. You know that it was brought under control. Uh, look, there were many Japanese casualties from the tsunami. Uh, the, the courage and fortitude and uncomplaining stoicism with which the Japanese people rebuilt after that absolutely devastating tsunami 10 years ago uh, amazing, right? But one of the big tragedies of that tsunami is also the fact that uh, it basically ended Japan's move towards energy independence. They, Japan was moving towards a fully nuclear electrical industry, and now uh, people were terrified. And so uh, there is uh, great public opposition to nuclear power in Japan. So, uh, I mean, that kind of, you'd think, pretty much brings us to the end of today's show, wouldn't you? I mean, after all, great news, and it's always best to go out on a high. And so if, in fact, you left me now, or I left you, I would be committing a flagrant act of chicanery and deceit, because I've left you with a notion that I've told you the full substance of the Wall Street Journal story from Jan uh, June 14th, and um, none of that is correct because there is one crucial little piece of information about hydrogen, well, maybe two or three crucial pieces of information, that are buried towards the end of the article um, and amidst a whole lot of other statistical data and things that I, I really think most readers are likely to go through the story without paying attention to one or two teensy-weensy little facts. Let's start off with one. Let me ask you, what does May 1937 suggest to you? Well, a lot of things happened in May 1937, right? Uh, it was two and a half years before the outbreak of World War II. Uh, but what else happened in May 1937? Uh, how about if I tell you it happened in the state of New Jersey in the United States of America? How about if I tell you it happened at a naval air station um, just a few miles west of Tom's River, New Jersey, just a few miles inland uh, at this place called Lakehurst Naval Station? And uh, it was, I think, May 6th, um, 1937. I think it was the 6th of May. If I'm out, I'm out only by a day or two. And uh, a German airship by the name of the Hindenburg, built by the Zeppelin Company, the Hindenburg arrived. And while it was still a few hundred feet off the ground, uh, it dropped. Uh, you know, what? maybe it wasn't a few hundred feet. Maybe it was less than that. But it, they were still high off the ground. And inexplicably, a uh, fire broke out. It's still not altogether clear. And um, the thing just ignited in a huge fireball and an explosion. And 36 people lost their lives. A lot of people are injured. I mean, people fell from the sky out of this machine. Uh, the Hindenburg, by the way, it carried the swastika insignia on its tail. 
and you know, you know, it was it was it was welcome. Now, I mean, nobody said anything because World War Two hadn't broke out yet. But you know, by 1937, Adolf Hitler was already securely in power with the Nazis in Germany. But uh, the mood in the United States at that time was somewhat um, isolationist in the sense that, uh, and by the way, I'm not sh- not wrongly necessarily at that point. Uh, basically um, saying, you know, the the problems of the old world, not our problems. So the Hindenburg, by the way, this thing, just to give you an idea, 800 foot long, right? The, the sight of it must have been incredible. And their newsreel, uh, there's newsreel footage where you can see this. Um, when I tell you it's 800 feet long, now for for many people, you know, there are a lot of people who don't even know how long a football field is. There are people who, who don't know how long the block they live on is. So how long is 800 feet? Well, to give you an idea, the biggest passenger airplane ever built called the Boeing Jumbo Jet, the Boeing 747, in its largest iteration is 250 feet long, 250 feet long. So three of them, three of them nose to tail lined up still wouldn't be quite as long as the Hindenburg was. And it was appropriately large in diameter. Right, a big, gigantic sausage. And uh, this thing blew up. Why? Well, because it was carried aloft. It was an airship. It was a lighter-than-air machine. It was carried aloft by um, being filled with hydrogen. That's right. Hydrogen burns Hydrogen is explosive. And again, at the back end, yeah, this could be a little bit of a problem. American airships of the period were fueled with helium, but uh, helium was in short supply. It is a strategic material, and uh, it was very hard. So Germany was way ahead in airship utilization because they were using hydrogen. What exactly ignited the 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 Zeppelin um, is not known for sure. Um, my speculation, you know, if I had to guess, uh, hydrogen is so flammable and so explosive that it can be ignited by a little spark in the air. Now, what's a spark in the air? If you have a gas stove at home, or maybe you have an RV. And in your recreational vehicle, you have a gas stove running on propane. And what you do is when you turn your gas knob in one direction, you get a clicking sound, right? Click, 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 click. And you'll notice a teensy-weensy little spark where the gas is coming out, and that ignites. That's what an igniter is. Sometimes barbecues have a, an igniter, which is very often a pizza crystal that gets a a blow from the button. You know, when you press that button, you can feel that it's sort of building up, it's storing up energy, and then a sort of little hammer comes on a spring and strikes a pizza crystal, producing a little bit of electricity, a teensy bit, just enough to create a little spark, which lights the propane in your gas barbecue. But needless to say, real men do not cook on gas barbecues. They use charcoal or wood, right? I mean, that's pretty well known, I think. Uh, Men do not use gas barbecues. That is for women. When they're not exercising on my machine, they can barbecue with a gas grill. But otherwise, real men use charcoal or wood. That's right. And so uh, 
the um, uh, the igniter is something that produces a tiny little spark that ignites the propane gas. Well, propane gas is not nearly as explosive as hydrogen gas is. And so the most minute of electrostatic sparks, how could that come about? Well, a lot of ways. Um, just the airship traveling through the air produces in the same way that when you rub a, a child's balloon on your sweater, it'll then stick to things. That's because of static electricity. So at any rate, without sort of dwelling too lengthily on this, the bottom line is uh, using hydrogen as a power source. Folks, if you thought a nuclear power station was dangerous, just wait to see what we bring you with hydrogen. <laughs> I mean, talk about a fireball. I am my goodness. Uh, but, you know, by all the euphoria about using hydrogen, you wouldn't know about that. Is that the, the biggest problem with hydrogen? Well, no. No, because, you know, you might say, hey, let's just be careful. Uh, but there's a slightly bigger problem. And this is such a beautiful problem that I think I have to try and find the exact words um, that Fred uh, used in his article. Um Okay, uh, let, me, let me just explain this. I found the words, but before I get to it, let me just explain this. Um, the good Lord, I'm giving you my view here, right? The good Lord uh, places a lot of oil underground in, um, in various uh, types of oil reservoirs. He put a lot of coal underground. Why? Well, because it is very clear that um, we need to be able to have energy sources. Uh, God does not want his children to exhaust themselves in drudgery, being hunters and gatherers 24-7. For one thing, he wants us not to work one day a week on the Sabbath. And uh, for another, he wants us to also devote ourselves to things beyond our own appetites. And so if like a squirrel um, or, a, uh, uh, or, or, or any other creature, if sustaining its life means that it's running around looking for nuts 24-7, it doesn't have the capacity to do very much else with its time, right? Well, God doesn't want us to be like squirrels. Uh, he doesn't want us to be like any sort of animals. And so making energy available to us is a huge and valuable goodness of a uh, creator that loves providing his children with abundance, just like any human father wants to be able to provide his children with abundance. And so um, the great thing is that by digging a well, you can extract oil and now you got it, and you can run it in power stations and in motor cars, and you can produce propane gas and put it in your recreational vehicle to power your stove and your heating system. It's all wonderful. And uh, there's also a lot of coal, a huge amount of coal. We're, we don't appear to be running anywhere close to within sight of running out of coal. And coal is wonderful. Why is coal so much better than wood? because a very small amount of coal provides more heat than a big amount of wood. That's right. 
And so um, the amount of energy that, shall we say, a steam engine used to have to carry in the carriage just behind the locomotive was always filled with coal, right? Later on, oil locomotives fill that with oil. But if the steam locomotive was going to run on wood, you'd have to have four times as much space devoted to carry even more than that, six times to carry the necessary amount of wood. But coal is heat dense. It has a lot of heat packed into its size and weight. So uh, the good Lord prepares all of that for us, coal and oil and liquefy a natural gas, which we liquefy for transport purposes. It's, it's all wonderful. Now, have any of you heard of any, like, reservoirs of hydrogen? Like, do you think underground there's big caverns of hydrogen gas? Well, I'm afraid not. Do you see the slight flaw? Actually, it's a gigantic flaw. Do you see that comparing oil and coal, which exist already in large quantities in great underground reservoirs, Do you see that comparing coal and oil to hydrogen is dishonest? The coal is there for the collecting. The oil is there for the drilling and getting. Where's the hydrogen? That's right. It doesn't exist. (laughs) So now, tucked away in the back of the article, tiny little uh, note here, uh, which I really don't think most people even read in their jubilation at having discovered that hydrogen is going to fuel our futures. Well, uh, here's the little sentence. I'm reading again from Fred's, P-H-R-E-D, Fred's article in the journal. A key problem is that hydrogen is not found by itself in nature, which means it must be extracted from other compounds, such as water or fossil fuels. By the way, that means oil and coal. That takes a lot of energy. More energy goes into producing hydrogen than comes out when that hydrogen is consumed. Did you hear what I just said? Do you realize that, yeah, of course you do, because you're happy warriors and you're regular listeners of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show. But do you realize what this has just said? What this has just said is that everything else in this two-page article, a page in the Wall Street Journal is pretty substantial, uh, this in every word, is wasted. You may as well trash the whole article because it's all nonsense. It's all based on a fantasy future where somehow or another we're going to find a good, easy, cheap way to produce hydrogen. But right now, did you hear what it says? It takes more energy to produce hydrogen than hydrogen actually can supply. (laughs) This would be like saying that... um, Uh, It takes much more energy to pull a gallon of oil out of the ground than that oil supplies. Well, then you've got a negative running system, right? Because if you've got a pump running on oil that pumps oil out of the ground, then it's going to soon grind to a stop because each gallon of oil brought to the surface will not power the pump for long enough to pump another gallon out. (laughs) That's what it is. I I mean, you'll pardon my amusement here, but uh, when the religion of the left trips over its bootlaces, Lappin laughs. That's all there is to it. I'm sorry. No, I'm not. So, um, uh, shall I continue? Okay. So, 
the article at the end of this little note said, by the way, it takes more energy to produce because there's no reservoir. It's not like you can go and get hydrogen out of a hole in the ground. It doesn't exist. You've got to create it. You've got to go through a quite complex process to extract it from, well, yeah, coal and oil uh, or, or water, which takes a huge amount of energy through electrolysis. Um, and it uses more energy than it produces. That means it's useless. So the whole article is nonsense, but it carries on. The most common ways of making hydrogen by extracting it from natural gas or from coal actually also produce a huge amount of carbon dioxide. <laughs> so the long-term goal, which was to use hydrogen to produce green electricity, <laughs> not only costs more money to produce than costs more energy to produce than it gives, but it actually produces a whole lot of uh, carbon dioxide, more than burning the coal or the oil in the first place. So makes sense, right? Because there's multiple steps here. Use the coal and oil to produce energy, to produce carbon dioxide, to produce hydrogen, Well, which you will then use to burn in a power station. Yeah, the end result of this whole thing is more fossil fuels and more emission gas than would have been done if you just burned oil and f and and coal in the first place <laughs> um but um the problem is so then oh then they say well maybe we can produce hydrogen by using solar and wind power and they answer that and say they say yeah it's too pricey the cost of solar and wind power electricity is so expensive that it's non-feasible to use for making hydrogen um so there you go my friends it's um <laughs> uh generating here's the the last thing i'll read again tucked into the back of the article generate generating electricity from hydrogen in japan would cost around nine times more than using coal. Get it? So can you imagine this working for Japan? That their energy costs would go up by nearly 10 times? Right? If you, if you think about the economics of energy and the role that energy plays in an economy, I think you'll see that, uh, that if a, uh, a samurai... A giant samurai issued a uh, an unconditional order that Japan must now run exclusively on hydrogen. The Japanese economy would shrink to about the size of uh, Wagudugu, the capital of Burkina Faso in uh, West Africa. That's about how big Japan's economy would shrink to if an edict went out to use hydrogen. Okay, so there, there you get the the idea. So. What is going on here, actually? What is, what is really happening? And it's, it's worthwhile spending a moment thinking about that. So, uh, my dear happy warriors, what, uh, uh, the question that we all are asking ourselves right now is, you know, is your rabbi such a brilliant guy that he sees the flaw that nobody else gets? Right, nobody else gets it, right? I mean, the Wall Street Journal, right? Much more prestigious than I am, and they printed this story, so it must be true, right? Well, it is if you read the whole thing very carefully, 
and you'll see all this i mean really uh i don't know how many column inches probably 30 it's a big big story fills up more than a page and um and if you read it all the way to the end very very carefully uh, you'll see that it's a nonsensical article it builds up hydrogen it's going to be so wonderful we can stop the rise of water level in the oceans and we can stop using coal and oil and gas and we can reduce our emissions to zero by 20 whatever uh and all we got to do is use hydrogen um problem is hydrogen explodes and hydrogen using hydrogen is 10 times more expensive nine times more expensive than using coal and um there's actually no way of getting hydrogen that isn't more expensive and more uh energy costly than the hydrogen supply so basically it's a non-starter end of story you can literally get back you know 10 minutes of your life by not reading this article because <laughs> it's it's a non-story so uh, am i am i so brilliant that i see the flaw but everybody else is wrong so the answer is that um when you're dealing with beliefs when you're dealing with the irrationality of belief then yes people do do irrational things an example that I, uh, I I think of and and speak of quite often is that uh, I only eat kosher meat, right? Um, it's so ingrained and so built into me that uh, even if I was hungry, I would not be able to get a non-kosher hamburger down my throat. I, I know, right? My throat would clamp up. It just wouldn't work. Uh, now, you come to me and you say, listen, um, you know, you've been the victim of a benighted, primitive, tribalistic indoctrination system that's been running for a couple of thousand years. And I got news for you. A McDonald's hamburger not only tastes better than a kosher hamburger, but it's about a third of the price. Do you have any idea of what, what benefit you can bring to your family budget? If you stop with this nonsense. You know, Moses has been dead for 3,000 years. He's not looking over your shoulder. Just forget this. Now, there's nothing in that statement that is irrational. There is nothing in that statement that is is wrong. And there's nothing in that statement that I don't know. It's all true. So am I going to now switch to McDonald's hamburgers? And the answer is no, because I have a belief system. And my belief system says that I can't do that. So given that we have to answer the problem of how can it be that the Wall Street Journal runs this non-story <clears throat> and that people read it and clap their hands with childish glee. Oh, goody, goody, goody. We're going to switch to hydrogen instead of coal and oil. And we're going to make the sea level stay down and the polar bears will be safe. Um, and, you know, nobody stops to say, well, wait a sec, like, where does this hydrogen come from? I know where oil comes from. I know where coal comes from. Where does hydrogen come from? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. We actually have to manufacture it. And it's pretty expensive and costly in both energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It doesn't make any difference. And so as soon as I am able to show you over the next few minutes we have together that the um, belief in climate change and the belief in energy shortage and the belief that we've got to get away from fossil fuel, all of that is religious faith. 
and as a result, it is not subject to rational analysis. It just isn't, right? In the same way that uh, if um, if somebody comes to a, uh, uh, a, a, a an, an observant and committed Christian teenager, teenage boy, and says to him, "Listen, what are you, like? What are your plans?" for your sex life as you like you know how do you understand male female relations and he says well um i am devoting myself <clears throat> to um growing and becoming uh, skilled i want to be able to make sure that i um, am learned in the bible and that i have a way of earning a living <clears throat> and when the time is appropriate i will marry uh, a pure christian girl as pure as I am, and um, we will build a life together. And uh, and by the way, if you think that's crazy, I'm in somewhat, I wouldn't say regular correspondence, but there's a couple of listeners. Um, they're both Christian, and they, they live in Greenland, and um, they're young. You know, I, I don't think either of them is 20 yet, but that's what they're doing. They're preparing to marry one another, and in the interim, are absolutely pure. That's it. So somebody has, um, you know, imagine uh, that um, somebody infatuated with the article I've just been telling you about speaks to this young Christian boy and says, uh, so your plans for the physical fulfillment part of your life is that in a few years' time you'll marry a, uh, a girl and be devoted to one another monogamously and uh, you'll get married. He says, yeah, that's exactly the plan. So the person says to him, and you can exactly imagine somebody saying to him this, right? It could be a sex ed teacher at an American public school. It most likely would be a university professor or associate or assistant professor. Uh, what I'm about to say now, you know, 60 years ago would have sounded nightmarish, but today it'd be perfectly normal. This professor says to this young Christian young man, says to him, listen, uh, you really don't want to do that. You're confining your, your fulfillment. Um, why are you depriving yourself of the greatest sensual pleasure available to human beings? Um, you should start right now, and you should gain experience, and after all, you think about it, you know, stop sacramentalizing sex, right? Stop making it synonymous with this whole big existential part of your life. It's nothing more than, uh, the, it's a sneeze in your spinal cosm, in your spinal column. That's, that's all it is. It's a spasm, uh, you know, and, and it's pleasurable. That's all there is. So don't do all right, look, um, at the end of the day, again, you, you might say, well, on a rational basis, on a purely rational basis, um, you know, how do you argue with somebody like that? And the only answer is, I have a faith system. You know, I'm Jewish, I'm Christian, and uh, I believe that uh, this great gift of male-female intimacy that God made available to us is something he created in order to build and strengthen the bonds of matrimony and to bring uh, joy and ecstasy in one another to a married couple. That's what I believe. So there's no point in us arguing and debating, um, you know, the alternatives or benefits. It just doesn't make any, you know, it's, it's irrelevant. 
That is how uh, those who subscribe to the religion of secular fundamentalism view climate change, global warming, energy crises. That's how they view it. It's a theology. It's a belief system. And so when I would say to somebody who is uh, excited um, to the, the point of a spasm in the spinal column by this article I've just told you about, and they paid no attention to the butt section at the back, um, and I said to him, look, but hydrogen's a dream. It's nonsense uh, for the following reasons. It explodes, and it's too costly to produce, and all these reasons. It's, it's a dream. Stop it already. And he'll say, I don't want to hear your rational facts. I have a belief system, and that is that somehow the only worthwhile thing humans have to do is to protect the planet, and we will do whatever it takes, and we'll go down this road of hydrogen, um, and we'll spend huge sums of money, and if it doesn't work, we'll find something else in exactly the same way that uh, so many other avenues have been gone down by the left to huge, unnecessary, wasted expenditure. It doesn't matter. Because when you believe something, that's just the way it is. So, um, so let me tell you now as we come to the most important part of today's show. Okay, and again, uh, I will remind you the website is rabbidaniellappin.com. Take a look for the Financial Prosperity Collection online course. Yeah, it's an online course, 10 hours of video instruction and uh, prepared specifically for one reason, and that is to give people the view and understanding and and direction they need in order to increase revenue uh, and use the Father's Day promotion. When it's time to enter the discount code, put in Father's, P- F-A- <laughs> that would be P-H-A-T, no, 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 Father's, F-A-T-H-E-R-S, 20. Two zero, uh, get your discount that way. Twenty dollars off. Okay, so uh, we're talking about faith, right? Okay, where? Okay, let me let me tell you what I've been excited by lately. Um, a book called "The Secret of Our Success" by a anthro- social anthropologist called Joseph Henrich. Now you know I find social anthropologists very interesting indeed, and I read them for you so you don't have to. Not only are we saving energy on this podcast, but even more importantly, much more importantly, uh, because God gave us energy to save time, I'm saving you time. So um, uh, the secret of our success, right? What he's looking at is, again, this great question of why it is that uh, Japan, that has followed the Western tradition since World War II, is more successful than uh, Burkina Faso in West Africa, in spite of the fact that the latter has more natural resources available than Japan does, which has to import oil and coal and iron. <laughs> Japan has to import everything. And yet they still built the world's third largest economy. Um, why? Because they know the principles of how to make money. Right Now, I, I don't teach what nations have to do, there's a lot of material available on that. I teach what individuals have to do to increase revenue. That's the Financial Prosperity Collection, the collection of 10 videos I've been talking about. But um, sociologists like Joseph Henrich 
the secret of success. That's what he's looking at, what makes for success in some cultures over others. Um, there's also, he participated in another project called the Puzzle of Monogamous Marriage. And that was uh, Joseph Henrich and Robert Boyd and Peter Richardson. You don't have to worry about that. As I'm telling you, I'm telling you what you need to know. I mean, if you happen to have a fascination in studying the topic more deeply, then go for it. God bless. But, um, but um, essentially what uh, they are saying is that, first of all, uh, monogamous marriage seems to be an absolutely fundamental precondition for a, success, for a successful culture. Um, you know, if you go into um, Appalachia, uh, an area of poor people in, part, in a part of the United States, there is no development. There is, there is no, you would not say there's a civilization. Let's put it this way. Nobody would risk drowning in the Mediterranean for the chance to go and live in Appalachia. But they would to go and live in France or Switzerland or Germany or Sweden or, Scan or Norway uh, because there's a very big difference. And that is marriage, monogamous marriage, is still basically extant in Western civilization, but doesn't exist in uh, Appalachia. It doesn't exist in the slum districts of the United Kingdom. There's no such thing as marriage. Uh, and tragically, there are parts of the African-American population in America, small parts, but the damaged parts, uh, where marriage doesn't exist. And the result is no development, no culture, no civilization, no money, right? So that's part of what these guys say, and I'm just quoting from them. They also, uh, all these social anthropologists speak about and uh, Appalachia and, uh, and the... Um, dysfunctional parts of Paris, France, of England. Uh, it's, it's, it's a simple thing. Strip monogamous marriage out of the equation, and within a couple of generations, you've got huge civilizational dysfunction, uh, crime, discontent, no education, poverty, all of these. Okay, that's part of it. Um, uh, Joseph Henrich goes a bit further, and he says that successful cultures um, have four types of system, systemic rules that run through the system. And so whatever culture you look at, says Joseph Henrich, they, the ones that failed did not have these, the system. Those that succeed did. What is the system? The system is four parts. Um, they have uh, number one. They have rules having to do with sex and family right? And uh, these rules explain, um, you know, uh, who, 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 you, who you may have relations with, and the degree of permanence and how those are ended, and the relationship with the children, and inheritance laws, what, what, what are the children entitled to? Basically, everything having to do with sex and family uh, is one set of those rules. Um, and it, uh, you know, it, and, and these rules are incredibly valuable when you think about them, and you think about them, they're biblical rules, the we, right? We know them as biblical rules, but Joseph Henrich is just saying whatever they are, um, societies that have these rules have, have worked. So what am I talking about? Well, you know, sex, family rules, incest. Why no incest? 
Well, uh, imagine what a, uh, a bad situation you have in a family if um, fathers are attracted to their daughters. And why aren't they? There's, no, there's nothing built into the biology, right? It's not biological, it's cultural. In the West, we've become so acculturated to the biblical foundation of Western civilization that we're, you remember, and last week's show, I spoke about this fact that behaving in a certain way produces, over a period of time, a different way of thinking. So think about this for a second. This is what I'm about to say will shock you, but that doesn't mean it's false. Uh, you need to you need to struggle with it a little bit because it's going to go against your uh, instincts, I think. And that is that um, a father doesn't think sexually about his daughter. He rejects that completely. It's, he has a, a deep distaste for that. Okay. And so you'd say, well, that's why he doesn't touch his daughter. Right? He doesn't go for his daughter because he has distaste. The answer is no. The answer is that through generation after generation of generation of fathers not touching their daughters, that produced a sense, an internal spiritual revulsion at the very idea. You follow what I'm saying? Please reverse cause and effect, and you'll have a better understanding of how the world really works. Um, uh, think about um, homosexuality. What's the problem with homosexuality? Well, in order for society to function, you have to have men able to form groups, right? Defense, military. It's going to be men, men soldiers when you get right down to it. Yes, I know a woman can fly a fighter jet, enough said. Um, but um, essentially, you've got to find a way for men to function together. That is true in digging a mine, and that's true for stringing electrical wires across a continent or building a railroad across the continent, um, you know, or for building a skyscraper or for laying highway. You've got to have a bunch of men willing to work together. And if we prohibit male-to-male sex, then you make that easier to function because it means groups of men can work without uh, erotic interruption and without erotic disruption. You follow, I hope you follow what I'm saying. And so once again, through generations of ingrained biblical teaching against homosexuality, um, right, we learned not to think about men that way and for many men there's even a revulsion at the at the at the uh, at the very idea that makes civilization better able to and i hope you understand exactly what i'm saying here right i'm not saying people who have homosexual tendencies or leanings are destroyers of civilization or i'm not saying any of that all i'm saying is that in the story of civilization having a rule that there is no erotic attraction we do not tolerate this being between men and that makes it possible for groups of men to function together without uh, what happens you know all of a sudden things devolve into into little romantic cliques i mean you know what happens to a company when a, a man and a woman working in the same company or in the same division or the same department uh, begin a romantic relationship. I mean, you know how problematic it is. Well, imagine if um, homosexuality was as prevalent as 
uh, pardon me, as normal sexuality, well, then in any group of men, whether you're trying to defend the country with a military or whether you're trying to build a highway or lay a railroad, whatever it is, the work could never happen because it would be constantly disrupted. Um, it protects the, these family rules, these rules about sex and family, protect women and children, right? It's not an accident that when a ferry drowns, when a ferry uh, sinks on Lake Victoria, it's not women and children first. The women and children drown at the same rate as the men. When a, a ferry sinks in Bangladesh, it's the same, nothing happened. But when the Titanic went down, it was women and children first. And I think that in, I would hope that in, in most cases, even contemporaneously, um, that that is what would happen. In other words, a feeling of saving women and children. That's the job of men. So a lot of these rules, a lot of these rules happen to be biblical, but when a society builds monogamous marriage and... Um, uh, I'm thinking one of, you know, one of the things that happened to, there's a guy in America called Reverend Al Sharpton, who is a race huckster, and um, uh, yeah, he, um, he is not a helpful person in American civic life. Um, what happened to him is that um, his dad um his dad was married to his stepmom, I believe it was at that point, if I'm not mistaken. And um, she had an 18-year-old daughter. And so Al Sharpton's dad started an affair with Al Sharpton's stepsister. And then he left the family and, and went off and set up house with his stepdaughter. And, and you know, it, it leaves feel, people feeling weird. The whole Woody Allen scandal. Right? Did it happen? Didn't happen? And yes, it's not a blood relative. It's not his actual daughter. Neither was it with the Al Sharpton story. But still, it it has you feeling uneasy. Why? Only because of the Bible. In other words, what I would like to lay out for you is the understanding that there is no innate, built into us hatred of incest. The normal default for a condition for a human man raised without any cultural input would be to be attracted to any woman regardless of whether she sprang from him 20 years ago it doesn't matter and the only reason we feel an instinctive revulsion for these things is because of well a couple of thousand years of uh, christian biblical uh, acculturation that's why it was practicing the laws of incest that made us develop a revulsion for incest. It's not the revulsion for incest that stops us practicing it. Got to turn cause and effect around and you'll have a better understanding of how the world really works, okay? So uh, the, um, the sex and family laws make it more likely that a society can function. Um, then the second set of laws that Joseph Henrich speaks about are money and property laws okay and these are they the, the biggest thing they do is they increase economic productivity because in the normal scheme of things the best intentioned of men engaged in commerce they're going to be disagreements misunderstandings things don't go quite as planned 
How do you resolve all these things? Well, any successful culture, said Joseph Henrich, will have, in addition to understood and accepted norms about how we handle sex and family matters, it'll have accepted norms about how we handle money and property uh, issues that crop up. Um, and many, many examples, you can think about it, right? What would happen if you, you'd enjoy the thought experiment of saying, what would it be like if a bunch of people are trying to build a village or a society that have zero laws about who owns property, how you get to own it, how you keep it, um, how other people can get it from you, and all of these things, you know, and the uh, matters of currency, you know, maintaining a stable currency, got to be whatever you use for exchange, right? it's got to be looked after. So all of these, any successful culture had these things. <clears throat> Needless to say, that again is at the heart of biblical thinking, right? I would say there are probably more rules in the five books of Moses about property and money than about any other topic. And I think what probably come next is sex and family. All right, Joseph Henrich says now, wherever you look in Asia or in Africa, or you're, wherever you look at a successful culture, <clears throat> going back hundreds and hundreds of years in his studies, um, they, the third set of rules will be about food. There will be various rituals about food, uh, sacrifices, um, uh, you know, various rules of what you may eat, what you may not eat. Um, there'd be, there'll be certain um, uh, taboos about certain foods, like for Jews, it's pork, for instance. But, you know, there, there are many tribes around the world, both in, uh, among Muslims, among Africa. You'll find lots of rules, lots of groups that have rules about food what to eat, how to eat it, in what company you may eat it. Well, you think about what good does that do to society? Why would it be that Joseph Henrich and his colleagues say, yeah, you know what, societies that have rules about food seem to do better. You want to write a book called Why We Succeed or The Secrets of Our Success, you need to look at the food rules. And what does it do? Well, um, it, it produces unity because eating together is an experience, right? Eating together works well. Uh, people like going out for dinner. Business deals often get sealed over a meal. Uh, eating together happens to have, and, and again, anybody with any spiritual sensitivity is aware of this reality. Family meals, hugely important. Please don't underestimate the importance of family dinner. If not every night, then certainly many times a week, as many as you can make it happen. It's important for the family to eat together. Well, rules about eating bring that peoples into a community. And what does it do? Well, when you've got unity, people are close to one another. They know one another. They like one another. And yes, they're going to trust one another. That means they can do business. And when people do business together, they create affluence. Um, that's how business happens. I'll tell you something else that food rules do. They train deferment of pleasure. Right? So, you know, going back to my hamburger, um, I've eaten my hamburger. Now I want a milkshake. I have to wait a few hours. I can't have the milkshake right away. How about a cheeseburger? How about dairy uh, products together with the meat products? Sorry, according to uh, Jewish food 
rules not allowed but i really 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 want a milkshake fine you're right and i'm five years old and my father says you can have one you just have to wait three hours that's all deferment of pleasure can you think of a more important principle for building a civilization if there's one thing you want to tell your little tribe you guys you got to work on this you got to defer pleasure you got to be willing to save and invest rather than spend you got to be willing not to eat your seeds but to plant them and um, because these rules including the the first set of sex and family and this third set of um, having to do with food they tend to um, discipline the appetites and that's a very big deal you discipline the appetite uh, it's hard to do let's face it that produces a feeling of shared uh, comradeship and community you know how it is that uh, men who have served together in a military unit in combat they have an unbreakable bond right now there are not so many men left who stormed the beaches of normandy in june 1944 but um <clears throat> but those who they used to meet regularly every year because you the bonds of a shared challenge are are very very big when you set your children a group challenge you not only get the job done but you're also building family because your children tackling something together well they build that helps to build a relationship between them and so when a group of people share the hardship of control on appetites that's a big deal it's a very big deal it has an enormous impact i want you to see how these four rules that joseph henrich recognized help the development of a civilization uh, the fourth and final one is living rituals you know uh, how you know how to dress how to uh, how to um uh, greet others do you shake hands do you not shake hands do you rub elbows um basically the the day-to-day -day things like um even things like you know should we pray or not pray all of these things would fall into sort of day-to-day -day, uh, things how how do they help us well uh these daily rituals including prayer uh take away alienation and guilt i don't feel like an intruder in this world because every morning i thank the good lord for everything <laughs> so i i feel like hey i'm a partner here I'm, I'm part of this i'm not an intruder and so um <clears throat> these things um uh, also help us understand the importance of a a social hierarchy i pray to god right and that's me and god that's what i do that's one of the reasons that in a Jewish synagogue, men and women sit separately. Because it's not me and my wife, or me and my girlfriend, or me and my three wives. No, it's nothing like that. It's me as an individual. I'm talking to God. That's me. So this fourth category of uh, the living rituals, the day-to-day -day rituals, tend to remove alienation and guilt 
and make it possible for somebody to to live fulfillingly and it also reminds us of the importance of the individual and the importance then of the family and then after that the indiv- the importance of the community and then the importance of the society there is a strict hierarchy uh, and it's something worth understanding um it's uh, society isn't the the first thing the first thing is i have to stay alive and look after myself then i've got to look after my family and then i've got to look after my community and only after that my society needless to say secular fundamentalism treats it in the reverse the state is all important right that's that's the big difference so um um use of energy by the way perfect example there I don't feel guilty about using energy. The good Lord gave it to me. It's it's meant to be. I'm not supposed to walk to the grocery store. I'm supposed to jump in my car and use half a gallon of gasoline in order to do it because that buys me time of my life that hopefully I'll be able to use more productively and more effectively and, and maybe more spiritually, right? So all of these things are really important. Now, I just want to point out a couple of things. First of all, um, the code of Jewish law is kind of interesting. Would you believe it's broken down into four parts? Uh, the first part, in Hebrew, by the way, is known as the uh, Evan Ha'ezer, and um, that part is all about sex and family. And then its second part is called Choshen Mishpat, um, and that has to do with money and property. You see what's happening here? Uh, the third part has to do with food rules. That's called Yoredea. And the fourth part is living rituals. That's called Orachayim. So to become a rabbi, you have to get smicha, that's the Hebrew word for ordination. And if it is a valid and worthwhile ordination or a valid smicha from a great rabbi, he will examine you. He will literally test you on how well you know Orachaim and Choshen Mishpat and Yoredea and uh, Evan Ezer and uh, Orachaim, uh, how well you know these four sections of sex and family, money and property, food and living rituals. Now, <clears throat> I'm not in by any way saying that Joseph Henrich took his idea from the Jewish code of Jewish law. No, of course he didn't. He, he's a good social anthropologist. He studied and he said, whoa, that's interesting. And he'd probably be absolutely fascinated to hear that the long-running anthropological experiment of the most uh, productive and effective civilization ever known, called the Judeo-Christian Bible-based civilization, to which people from all over the world vote with their feet, getting to to come to to be part of. He'd be he'd be astounded and amazed and delighted to hear that that system, in its Jewish element, is based on exactly those four separate sets of rules and regulations. And finally, as we wrap up, I need to point out that as I started off telling you that secular fundamentalism is a religion, every bit as irrational as my religion or your religion, every bit, and that the reason that the Wall Street Journal publishes a story like that is because the Wall Street Journal newsroom is populated by journalists trained in the same universities 
and the same graduate schools of journalism as the journalists of the New York Times. No difference, except they work for the the Wall Street Journal. And so because those people who are most successful are the ones who are most religious in and committed to the religion of secular fundamentalism, that's why Fred wrote an article that makes no sense. But then my keeping to the rules of kosher food make no sense. And uh, the young Christian boy I was telling you about who's sticking to the rules of sexual purity, that makes no sense, right? Well, of course they really do, but not in a way that you can explain rationally to a heretic. Right, to a secular fundamentalist doesn't work. And so please know that in the same way that Jewish culture is based on these four principles and Christian culture in one way or another is based on these four categories, and as Joseph Henrich says, all successful cultures around the world have these four sets of rules or rituals or regulations so it is that secular fundamentalism does as well. The first category, right, sex and family. All right, well, their rule is that it takes a village to raise a child, not a family. Their rule is that uh, it's society that's important, not the family. And so they have rules within this category under sex and family. Their rule is no family and The other rule is you think that all of this, the whole reason that you get to go to a family party and delight in being in the company of your uncles and aunts and your cousins, that's only because grandpa was a man and grandma was a woman and their eyes caught across a room many, many years ago and they united and became as one and that produced children and grandchildren and there's the glory of a family. But the religion of secular fundamentalism says, man and woman, what are you talking about, you heretic? There's no such thing. And so, obviously, if you are a religious, deeply committed, pious, secular fundamentalist, obviously you have to abolish male and female, and you have to abolish family, and you have to abolish the relationship between parents and children. I've spoken before about the necessity of applying a 100% death tax. In other words, we don't want a special relationship between you and your children that is exemplified by only your children getting your possessions when you pass on to an embrace with the Lord. No, your possessions have to go to all the children of society, with the government existing as a distribution agent, obviously. Um, In the area of money and property, second category, uh, how about secular fundamentalism? Sure, money is bad and uh, wealth is awful, and the only way to atone for it is by taxation. That's called, the rich must pay their fair share, right? (laughs) That's how that works, Uh, and that's why you'll hear politicians tumbling over their feet in their eagerness to talk about how they grew up poor, because it's shameful to grow up rich. You know, if you were lucky enough to be raised by a man and woman married to one another who did well and saved and invested and built up assets and became affluent, and you want to go into politics, you better conceal that. 
you have to come up with a story about having grown up in a broken home with a single mom in poverty. That's because the religion of secular fundamentalism glorifies the absence of money. The religion of Bible-based Judaism, yeah, glorifies money. You know why? Because there's only one way you get money if you didn't forcefully confiscate it from someone else. The only way you got money was serving that other person, and God wants us to serve his other children. And the result of that is money. It proves you served your, other, your, your fellow citizens. That's good. But no, the religion of secular fundamentalism, no, um, affluence is bad, and poverty and virtue go together. What are you talking about, Rabbi Daniel Lappin? Really? Yes, really. Uh, San Francisco passed a law called Property 40, Proposition 47. <laughs> Property on my mind. Proposition 47. You know what it says? That stealing anything up to $950 is not an issue. That's not a felony. It's just a little misdemeanor. It's not a big deal. So um, shoplifting in San Francisco got so bad that stores are closing. Walgreens has closed, I believe, 17 branches in San Francisco. And the reason is very simple. They're, they steal, right? There's Shoplifting is out of control. They can't run the store to profit anymore. Why? Because the district attorney <clears throat> of San Francisco and the people of San Francisco believe that poor people are virtuous. They can do no wrong. There's an actress, terrible actress, but she's an actress called Cynthia Nixon, <clears throat> who can't decide if she's an actress or a politician. I think she tried to run for the Senate in the state of New York. It doesn't matter. Bottom line is, she attacks any store that tries to prosecute shoplifting. She says, um, poor people have a need for the basics of life. That's really what she said. That's what happens when you are a secular fundamentalist, you, um, <clears throat> you believe that anybody clinging to their property is evil and anybody should be able to have things. Um, I wonder how she would feel about a suggestion that she stocks up her fridge and freezer and opens up her fancy Upper East Side co-op in New York telling people, hey, come get. Would she do that? Well, according to all latest reports, the answer is no. And so uh, money and property, yes, in my religion, there are rules and regulations about money and property which have created the most affluent and prosperous and successful society in, the, in history. But the religion of secular fundamentalism also has rules, pretty much the opposite of mine, but they are rules nonetheless. And uh, if you violate them, if you even suggest that much of poverty is caused by dysfunctional behavior and bad values on the poor. Any suggestion that poor people are in any way complicit in their own misfortune can get your life destroyed today because the dominant state religion in the United States of America is secular fundamentalism. It's Christians to the catacombs. Well, I told you of four and I've told you two, right? Sex and family, uh, how secular fundamentalism has its rules. Secular fundamentalism has its rules about money and property. Third category is food. Secular fundamentalism has its rules about food. Locally sourced. You must only eat locally sourced food. Like what? 
Why? I mean, I can come with all kinds of proof, rational, true facts that it's nonsense that there's any value to anybody at all with locally sourced food. It doesn't matter. It's a religious doctrine. I mean, you'll see it on restaurant menus nowadays. Locally sourced produce. Who cares? As long as it's good produce at a good price, does it matter that it came on a truck from the next state or from another country by airplane? Of course not. But when you're dealing with religion, facts and rationality don't matter at all. It's all religious faith. And so, in order for a culture to last, it must have rules about food. That's category number three. So, don't be surprised. Secular fundamentalism has its rules about food as well. There are many, many of them. I'm just giving you a couple of them. Locally sourced is one. A tendency to believe that vegetarianism is more moral, that it's somehow better, that's another. Um, No organically modified foods. Right, we've got to stop. Organically modified foods is one of the reasons that nobody is starving. Right, there's a lot of food being grown. That's because of genetic modification. It's a good thing, not a bad thing. Doesn't hurt people, but people believe in the devil, in Satan, in they do, and I believe in the evil inclination, what uh, what Job in the Old Testament encountered as Satan, or what Adam and Eve encountered as the serpent, but the religion of secular fundamentalism has it as well, right? And it's carcinogens, and it's uh, what will happen to you if you violate the rule of genetically modified food. Yeah, there's, there's all kinds of rules. How about another part of secular fundamentalism, um, that when you go to have a restaurant meal, Uh, it's okay to spend $60 on a bottle of wine or more. Like, what's this? It's grape juice, my friends. It's grape juice that's stuck around for a while, right? How about apple cider? Anybody charge $60 for a bottle of apple cider? (laughs) They laugh at you. Or how about some fermented orange juice? No, but $60 for fermented grapes? Yeah, that I'll do. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Again, only because of a collective primal memory that the Bible speaks about wine. And that right at the very beginning, Noah, after the flood, got intoxicated on grape juice, wine, fermented grape juice. That's the only reason. But you see, it's part of secular fundamentalism. It's They create a ritual around the wine. Have you noticed the the sommelier will let you smell the cork and he'll pour a little into a glass for you to swish around and then you nod and you tell him it's okay, then he'll pour for your guests. Is that any more irrational than the ritual I have that I say a blessing on wine every Friday night? Of course not. It's just two different religions. They happen to be opposite of one another. They happen to clash with one another. But they both have rituals over wine, no difference, and a lot of rituals about food, right? Is the rule that you must eat locally sourced food, is that more ridiculous than mine, that you mustn't eat um, a cheeseburger? It's religious rules, end of story. And uh, lastly, living rituals, right? Uh, Joseph Henrich identified living rituals as the last category, and uh, and and we have that as well, 
right? I have, uh, um, uh, the, the, you know, I pray, I, uh, I, I, I give charity to people, I connect with people. Uh, well, uh, in the religion of secular fundamentalism, um, I think that obeying the government, people get a deep sense of virtue, right? They escape alienation and guilt by wearing masks, even when they're not necessary. But in every way, government is automatically right in the same way that I believe God is always right. It's exactly the same. One's got a little g, government. One's got a big g, God. But it's the same thing. It's not really, but I mean, you understand what I'm saying, right? That belief in something big like that fills the same need that Joseph Henrich identifies. For me, it's God. For secular fundamentalists, it's government. Uh, for me, my living rituals emphasize the hierarchy of importance. I've got to make sure that I live and behave properly. Then I've got to make sure my family lives and behaves properly. Then I've got to do everything I can to make my community do that, and then my society in that order. But the living rituals of secular fundamentalism encourage the other way society first people are grouped not as individuals but as parts of a race parts of a class parts of a gender doesn't work like that in the way the world really works so uh, my friends that is the idea and so when you uh, ask me why i point out the fallacy of the wall street journal's story on hydrogen it's because it was written by a high priest of secular fundamentalism, not by a scientist. Actually, even scientists today become secular pri uh, priests of secular fundamentalism, and that's uh, obviously a part of this whole story. But it is as far as we're going for today, and um, a special prize for those of you who have stuck with me all the way to the end. Have you? Uh, if you have, let me know. Would you go to rabbidaniellappin.com? There's an About Us tab. Click on that, and the drop-down will give a contact us. Tell me if you do listen all the way to the end. Not in one fell swoop, but that's the great thing about a podcast. You can pause it and come back to it another time. So uh, how many people actually do go all the way to the end of a podcast like this? And in many ways, it's the end that uh, makes the beginning make sense, all right? Because I told you many, many distortions in the beginning of the show, which now uh, I hope become clear in the sense that, uh, you know, that uh, gym I've got where I've got these women peddling away. Well, enough said on that too. I am your rabbi as always. Appreciate you being part of the show. Thanks for spreading the word on the show. You're doing great, and I appreciate that. And uh, I wish you a wonderful week focused on your five Fs, please, regardless of the storms that swirl turbulently around the foundations of our lives. Focus on your faith on your family, on your finances, on your friendships, and on your fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.